for our sermon this morning. Uh, if you want to turn with me to Jonah chapter 2, we'll be back there as we continue to unpack Jonah chapter 2 together. Uh, we started last week with a, a message entitled, Recognizing God's Sovereignty, and this week we want to take a look at Jonah chapter 2 through the lens of depending on God's grace. So last week we saw God is the one who acts in human history. This week we want to see what pr- compels his heart to act and depending on God's grace. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, you can follow along there. If not, the text will be on the screen behind me, so you can read it as I read it for our hearing this morning. But Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we find these words, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and your floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's Word. Listen, if there was one church song that nearly that was seared into the conscience of nearly every American, not just Christian, but every American, it is the song Amazing Grace. In fact, in 2018, somebody ran the statistics on how many times that song had been performed based upon the copyright laws, and it was somewhere over 10 million performances of that song across just our nation alone. So every time you go to a church service, particularly in certain strains of church services, you hear that hymn played and sung. If you attend a funeral, even if the person was not a believer, oftentimes the family wants to have that hymn sung at the funeral. It's seared into the collective consciences of the people who call our nation home. And yet there are many self-professing Christians And many churches who are no longer amazed by God's grace. It's not amazing to them any longer. And I think there may be several reasons for that. But one of the reasons I believe to be the glaring reality that we live in what many have classified as a therapeutic age. A therapeutic age where we don't see our main problem as our sin before God. But we see our main problem as our self-esteem. And so we don't see the big issue in our life is that we have sinned against the holy and just God, but we see the big issue in our life is that we don't feel good enough about ourselves. And the message of many contemporary churches as a result sounds kind of like a Hallmark card. Okay, and so um, in that setting where grace, when grace is mentioned in that kind of setting, people think, well, that's nice, right? But get back to telling me how good and special and unique and snowflake-like I am. Right? I'm like a fingerprint upon the cosmos because that's just how unique I happen to be. 
And yet to be amazed by grace, church, we must set grace, like grace is like a, the, the grandest diamond or gemstone you can possibly imagine. And whenever you go to the jewelry store to pick out a diamond, okay, and you walk into that store and they've got all the lights set at the proper angles and they've got the cases with the glass and those diamonds are oftentimes sitting upon a vel- some kind of velvet crushed material backdrop that is black in color because against that black background that diamond shines with all of its brilliance it stands out as something that is beautiful multifaceted and magnificent And if we're to be amazed by grace, listen, you can't set grace against the backdrop of our self-esteem. You have to set grace against the backdrop of the darkness and blackness of our sin. Because only then does grace shine forth as what it is. So in that kind of setting, whenever you set grace against the backdrop of sin, people say, stop telling me about how special and unique I am, but keep telling me about how good and gracious God is. Because that's what we need to hear if we're to be amazed by grace. And this is what Jonah finds to be true, listen, when he sinks to what he says are the roots of the mountains in Jonah chapter 2. And the reason Jonah has this recognition in chapter 2 in his prayer is the same reason that we do as well whenever we sink to the bottom. Because it's often not until we hit the bottom that we have to look up. It's not until we hit the bottom that we realize that we can't depend upon ourselves. And in reality, we can't really depend upon anyone else to remedy our greatest condition, our deepest need, that only God is able to do that. But when Jonah reaches the end of himself in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the ocean and he cries out to God at the end of himself, all he can do is depend upon God's grace. That's his only hope at this point is that God would be gracious to him. And so in verse 9, he comes with this magnificent declaration that we said last week is at the dead center almost of the book and the dead center of the storyline of the Bible that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's Jonah's experience of God's grace. He sees God's sovereignty, yes, and then he, rec- he experiences God's grace which leads him to make this declaration in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. He's amazed by God's grace in the depths of his own consequences. And listen, church, if you and I are to come to a place where we're to once again be amazed by grace and depend upon grace and rejoice in grace, now I want to lay out some planks for us this morning, some steps that we have to take in order to come to a place where grace is like that diamond shining against that black backdrop and we can see it for what it is. And the first plank is this, is that if we're to really be amazed by grace, we have to learn to admit that we don't deserve deliverance. We've got to come to that recognition. See, one of the reasons people in our age are not amazed by grace any longer is because we don't think that we're so bad that the only thing that can deliver us, the only thing that can save us, the only thing that can rescue us is God's grace. But it's this realization 
that Jonah comes to in the belly of the fish that leads him to the conclusion that salvation belongs to the Lord. And you see it throughout the prayer. In verses 3 and 4, let me show it to you. Jonah recognizes that God is the one who has cast him into the sea. We saw that last week. But throughout the book, up to this point, Jonah has been constantly like in quicksand. And I remember those old movies, like the 60s and 70s, whenever they tried to depict somebody sinking in quicksand, right? This is the most awkward thing that you've ever watched on television, right? As they just kind of slowly drop down into the quicksand. But this is what Jonah's been doing the entire time from whenever God taps on his heart in, in Israel and sends him to Nineveh. He runs away from God and he goes down to Joppa. And then from Joppa he goes in down into the ship, down into the inner part of the ship, and then down into the water and all the way down to the roots of the mountains. Jonah's been on this downward spiral the entire time that we've read about his life here in this book. And this steady downward spiral in Jonah's life is because of rejection of God's call, his rebellion against God, because of Jonah's own sin. So that whenever he hits the bottom, when he hits the bottom, he recognizes that what he's experiencing, when he says, for you cast me into the sea, what he's experiencing at this moment is divine justice. Divine judgment. That the storm was God's God's, God's justice in chasing after him, that the watery grave that he was sinking down into. In verse 2, he says he was in the belly of Sheol. We said last week, Sheol was not like our conception of hell, but it was where you went when you died. And so for Jonah, in the Old Testament mind, to say, I was in the belly of Sheol crying out to God, Jonah was saying, I was as good as dead and could do nothing to remedy my situation. And I deserved it. Because you notice, Jonah's not arguing with God about whether or not God, he, he deserved to be where he was. Right? He's not saying, God, how could you treat me this way? He's not saying, God, how could you deliver me over to death? Because Jonah had come to a place where he admits this is exactly what he deserves, but he doesn't admit it until he sinks all the way to the bottom. I believe one of the reasons for this is because up to this point in Jonah's life, whether it was something formally that he would confess with his lips or functionally that he just kind of felt in his life, this must be the way the world works, that he believed that God must grade on a curve. Okay? He grades on a... You, listen, I had a couple of professors in college, okay, that they were, they, they, they at times graded us on a curve. Okay? So whenever the content was perhaps so difficult and they knew that we'd invested time and energy into studying and preparation, right? So some of you are like, what's, some of you are like, what's this curve thing of which you speak, right? Grading on a curve essentially is this, is whenever the content is challenging and difficult so that even the person who excels the most in the class struggles on that particular exam, the professor sometimes would have the option of grading on a curve. So if the brightest and best student in the class, let's say they got an 89 on the exam, that was the highest grade that was scored in the class, everyone else fell below that and some way below that. So what the professor would do is they would take that 89, they would add 11 points to that to bring that 89 up to 100 and then add 11 points to everyone else's grade to bring them up, okay? That's what it was to grade it on a curve. And oftentimes that meant you were going from one letter grade to another letter grade. It was glorious <laughs> for students like me, right? I needed that curve sometimes. 
Right? But that's what Jonah kind of conceives. This must be the way that God works, the way that the world works, that God grades on a curve, that he looks at our best effort, and then he just adds on top whatever it is that we fall short with, and then that's how things must work in the world. But it's not until he sinks to the very bottom that he realizes that God doesn't grade that way. That some professors may grade that way, but God does not. In other words, God doesn't look down and say, but they've tried so hard. I'll just kick in a little bit extra to get them to where they need to be. See, when we fall short of full obedience to God, there is no curve making that would lead us to be deserving of deliverance. You and I don't deserve to be delivered. What the Bible consistently tells us over the course of its pages is that we have fallen short of the glory of God, that we deserve death and damnation, not deliverance. That's what we've incurred by our sin. And if you're going to be amazed by grace, and that first plank is you've got to come to a place where you recognize that you don't deserve to be delivered. But the second plank is this, is that you've got to acknowledge that you can't deliver yourself. You can't deliver yourself. See, listen, some of you may look at, look at a message like this and say, well, I, listen, I'm not as bad as those people, right? That's exactly what Jonah was doing as he looked at the Assyrians, where God was saying, I'm not as bad as those people. And listen, while the reality may be that none of us is as bad as we could be, okay? Listen, I could think of doing a lot worse things than I've done in my life, and so could you. Even those who are incarcerated in supermax prisons can do worse things than what they've done to find themselves where they are. So none of us is as bad as we could be, but that also means that none of us is as good as we should be. None of us. Right? Last night at the the daddy-daughter dance, um, somebody had the bright idea, okay, of putting on a limbo contest. Oof. Right, and for those of you, some of you know this about me. You know I like to torture myself every Saturday morning by going down to White Rock Lake and just running for a really long time. And so yesterday morning, I'd, I'd run 19 miles around the White Rock Lake area. And so whenever I got here last night, uh, my legs were already, my body was already pretty much shot, okay? And so I'm dancing with my daughter, and we're getting down, right? You like those moves, right? And so well, all, all the dance hap- stuff's happening, and then they set up the limbo bar, and, they're, and, my, and, and my daughter's like, Daddy, you've got to do it with me. I'm like, baby, I'm going to cry. You're going to have to scrape me up off of that floor by the time this night is over. And so sure enough, we go to, under the first bar, and I'm, I'm limboing, right? Now listen, some of those girls, bless their hearts, right? They would just kind of get down and crawl under it, right? They were not playing by the rules. I felt cheated. But there... <laughs> But so the first bar I get under, the second bar whenever they lower it down a little bit further, okay? So I'm, I'm, you know, doing the whole like trying to get down and squat and lean back. And as soon as I get in that position in the second level of the bar, like the bar is right here, I'm almost under it, and my left hamstring just starts to cramp uncontrollably. And I just fall back on my backside, and I'm done. I'm out of the competition. One bar in. But other dads, man, listen, 
who are much more flexible than I am, I suppose, kept going and going and going until I finally got down to these two young girls, right? One of them was one of our, uh, a member, uh, a child of one of our church members, and they were like just kind of getting down, getting under that bar. But at some point, every single one of them couldn't pass under the bar any longer. They couldn't get low enough right, to not touch the bar or touch the ground as they went under it, right, because no matter how low you can go, you can't go low enough at some point in order to make it underneath, and whenever we think about God's standards, God's standards are not approximation, they're perfection, and so if we were to all line up on the, on, the, on, the, on the banks of Virginia and try to swim to the banks of France. Some of us would swim a little bit further than others. Okay? But all of us are going to end up at the bottom of the ocean at some point. Even Michael Phelps. Okay? Because none of us can get low enough. None of us can. God's standard is perfection. You can't shed enough sin. You can't shed enough foolishness. You can't shed enough fleshliness to pass under that bar. We can't deliver ourselves. And one of the reasons we're not amazed, not captivated, not, we don't marvel at grace is because we don't really think that we're so powerless that we're incapable of fixing our problem. Even if we have a problem, right, then we've got to roll up our sleeves and get to work. Get her done. Right? Because if we can fix our own problems and we put God in the position of being indebted to us. But notice how this, uh, the, the answer to this issue shows up in Jonah's prayer as well. In verses 5 and 6, when Jonah acknowledges the severity of his situation, he doesn't use the language of like self-help gurus. Okay? He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. In other words, Jonah says, I was shackled and restrained, locked up in a watery prison, and there was nothing that I could do to get myself out. Jonah acknowledges he has no remedy for his situation. He doesn't say, listen, I was in a bad spot, but then I harnessed the power of positive thinking, and I imagined my way into deliverance. He doesn't say, I was in a bad spot, but then right, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Right? The Bible says over and over again that you don't have the straps or the boots to pull up yourself. Jonah doesn't say I was in a bad spot, but then I got my act together and I made it happen. No, this is what Jonah says. I was in a bad spot and God rescued me. In verse 6, he says, Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. And he says this before he's ever vomited out of the fish. Jonah says, I'd made a mess of my life, but God delivered me. I had run as far and as fast as I could from God who made me in His image to reflect His likeness, but He saved me. I was as good as dead, but God raised me to new life and rescued me. So not only do we not deserve deliverance, church, but we cannot deliver ourselves. We're dependent upon God to reach down and deliver us. 
And that's what makes grace so amazing. We don't deserve it. We can't do it. Can't deliver ourselves. But third, listen, our deliverance demands that there's a high price to be paid. And so if grace is to be amazing to us, we must also see the costliness of grace. See, an additional reason why grace is not all that amazing in our culture is because we really don't think the remedy to our situation is very expensive. It's very costly. We don't, because what we think is that a God of love, right? If God's love and God's all powerful and God's all loving, he can just snap his fingers and deal with our situation. Our problem can go away. Our sin can be eradicated. But that is not the impression we walk away with if we really understand who Jonah's praying to and where this one Jonah's praying to resides. There are two places in the prayer where Jonah refers to God residence as his temple right that he was driven from the side of God yet I shall once again look upon your holy temple and verse 4 then in verse 7 Jonah says that when his life was fainting away that he remembered the Lord and his prayer came to God in your holy temple now how can Jonah how can Jonah be certain that he would once again behold the presence of God by looking upon God's holy temple. Jonah, who had been cast into the deep, driven from God's presence, driven from God's sight because of his sin, how could Jonah have his prayer rise to the Lord in his holy temple? The secret, church, is that the presence of God dwelt not only in the temple, but specifically, particularly in this place in the temple called the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, behind the curtain. And you know what lie behind that veil or behind that curtain? It was the Ark of the Covenant. You know what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments reflecting God's perfect moral law that He had given to His people. And you know what rested on top of the Ark of the Covenant? It was a thing called the Mercy Seat. And on the Day of Atonement, every single year, the high priest, right, because God was so holy and God was so perfect, they would tie a rope around the high priest's leg so that if he dropped dead in God's presence, I ain't nobody else going in there to get him out so they could pull him out by the rope. right? And so they went in once a year after they had slain the animal and taken the blood, and they would come into the Holy of Holies, and they would take the blood, and they would sprinkle it on top of the mercy seat that rested upon the Ark of the Covenant in which the Ten Commandments were housed. God's perfect moral law there in the Ark, and His disposition as a God of mercy and grace, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, resting atop of that Ark, and that blood was sprinkled upon it. See, in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, right, God had established this image in our minds that deliverance, that redemption, that forgiveness is costly. It is costly. It requires the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, the Bible says. And so when Jonah's thinking of God residing in his temple, he's not just thinking of God kicking back on the sofa, right, in the outer courts. He's thinking of God residing in the holy of holies, the most holy place where the mercy seat was and where the blood was sprinkled. 
for the remission or forgiveness of sins. God had established that picture. He'd built into that sacrificial system the costliness of deliverance. And listen, church, if you fast forward and you get to what the author of Hebrews is going to say, that was but a shadow. It was but a shadow. And the substance had not yet come at that point, but the substance would come through the person of Jesus Christ. And if you move into the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is all about how the Old Testament sacrificial system, ceremonial law, gets fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 4 and following, it says this, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The author of Hebrews says God didn't want the sacrifices, the, the, the empty ritual in which there was no real repentance and that the blood of the bulls and the goats that was sprinkled there could not fully take away the sins of the people, but it pointed to the blood of the lamb that could and that he would come. And I love the way the author of Hebrews here in chapter 10 says, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I've come to do your will. He said, you've prepared for me. This is Jesus praying this prayer. You've prepared for me this body and I've come to do your will because that's the offering that you want. That you want our obedience. He wants to walk in, in, in faith and trust and dependence upon you. And Jesus says, I've come to do that. And the author of Hebrews says, because he did that, because he came and walked in perfect and full faith and obedience, responding to his father of yes and amen at every juncture, that his blood has been able to take away our sins and we've been sanctified by his sacrifice once for all. That's why we have the bread and the cup up here and not an altar for you to bring your cats and your dogs and your goats and your chickens and your pigs this morning. Because there's no longer any sacrifice left to be offered. Because Christ has made it once for all. How costly is that? It's His blood. His blood upon the mercy seat. See, if grace is to be amazing to us, we have to see that we, we have to admit we don't deserve deliverance, we can't deliver ourselves, and that our deliverance came at a high price. The very Son of God Himself. 
but then fourth, and finally, if grace is to be amazing to us, listen, church, we have to learn to rehearse the yets of our lives. Learn to rehearse the yets in your life. In verses 5 and 6, Jonah says, Here's where I was, in this watery tomb, yet here is what God did. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And that little three-letter conjunction, yet, listen church, it is at the center of every person's conversion. Is at the center of every act of deliverance, the center of every saving act that God performs on our behalf. That word yet is the turning point of life in which God brings us up from the pit. And we would do well to remember and rehearse those moments in which we said, I was sinking deep in sin, yet God rescued me. I had a yet moment in my life for the very first time at the age of 15. Listen, I was not raised in church. I was not taught the Bible growing up in my home. But by God's grace and His providence, He ordained that I would be someone who enjoys torturing myself by running. And so I ran cross-country in high school. And the friend of mine who was on the cross-country team who began to to tell me I needed to come run cross-country, right, was also the same friend who began to tell me, you need to come to church. And so through his invitation and persistence, I showed up at a Wednesday night youth gathering one, one Wednesday evening. And though I'd grown up in the South and I'd heard the name of Jesus before, okay, oftentimes in profane ways and used it in those ways as well, That was the first time when I walked through the doors of that church that I had ever heard the good news. That God did something that I could not do for me in the sending of His Son who lived the perfect and sinless life that I could not live and was strung up on a cross to die the death that I deserved to die. It was the first time I ever heard the Gospel. And listen, church, I couldn't have told you in that moment why, whenever he said, bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand, if you want to respond to Jesus in faith, I couldn't have told you why, as I could now, looking back on it and seeing the Holy Spirit, understanding what was going on in my heart and life at that time, that the Spirit was bringing conviction and opening my eyes to see the beauty of Christ. But in that moment, all I knew was that I needed what that man was talking about. And yet... At 15, this incredibly lost, full of lust and greed and shame, this teenager, God said, bring your life up from the pit. And listen, church, there have been other yet moments in my life 
in which I made a mess of things. Right? Because, because God rescues us from sin and the punishment there, thereof doesn't mean that immediately we become these perfect people who never fall again. But listen, I have made a mess of things. But God graciously, you know what He did? He sent a storm. <laughs> and I got thrown overboard, and you know what? There were other yet moments in which God rescued me from my selfishness and from my greed and pulled my life up from the pit. And there are times where I have to rehearse those yet moments. Remember what God has done to save me. And listen, church, if you want to be amazed by grace, afresh and anew, you've got to do a little replay in your own mind and in your own heart, rehearsing the yet moment in your life. I think about the old hymn. So I was, that church that I came to faith in was a good old traditional Southern Baptist church. We sang from the Broadman Holman hymnals. All right? And I remember us singing this song frequently on Sunday mornings. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can we do to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Brighter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see His face. Will you this moment His grace receive? And the refrain, grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. I remember singing that song. And we sang Amazing Grace. And we sang Rock of Ages. And rehearsed the gospel message that I found to be true in that yet moment at 15 and that I found to be true in those yet moments at 25 and at 30 and at 35 and at 40 and now almost at 45, although it pains me to say it. Have you had those yet moments? Do you recall them? Rehearse them? You didn't deserve to be delivered like Jonah because you would run from the Lord. That you couldn't deliver yourself because you're powerless, in a, encased in a tomb of sin and shame. And yet God, at great cost to Himself, provided a remedy that you might be His. Man, it is good to rehearse God's grace. And one of the ways that we do that corporately together as a church body is in the songs that we sing, but it's also through coming to the Lord's table every single month together. 
And Redeemer, we do that every single month. The third Sunday of every month, we come and we receive the bread and the cup. And as we receive the bread and the cup, we're reminded of that crimson flood. We're reminded of the blood that was spilled on Calvary. We're reminded of God's grace, the mercy seat. We're reminded of the one whose life was lived before God in utter obedience and whose death was substitutionary in nature, taking our place and our sin upon Himself so that we might know the mercy and goodness and grace of God. And it was before Jesus was crucified in the Gospel accounts as He gathers with His followers that night before He is betrayed and He takes the bread and as they share a meal, He breaks it and He says, this is My body broken for you. And then they pass the cup and they bless it and He says, this is the cup. The new covenant in My blood and every time you eat, every time you drink, you do so in remembrance of me. You see, church, when we come to the table, we're rehearsing God's grace in our own lives, remembering what he's done. That yet moment in which you first came to life and all the other yet moments in which he rescued you from all of your foolishness. See, our main problem is not our self-esteem. Our main problem is our sin and our guilt and our shame before God that whenever that is eradicated by His grace, then we discover that we are more loved than we could possibly ever dream or dare to imagine. But oftentimes it's not until we're down at the bottom looking up that we discover it. And so this morning, if you're here and you've never had a yet moment in your life, by God's grace, that could be today for you. If you would recognize that, listen, the power of positive thinking isn't going to save you. Working really hard to pull yourself up and make something out of your life is not going to save you. But only Jesus can save you. And if you would turn to Him, trust in Him, throw your life upon Him, He would be powerful, mighty, sovereign, and good and gracious to save. And if you're here this morning and God, had, you've had one of those yet moments, but you find yourself in the midst of another <laughs> futile place because of your foolishness, I want you to know God, God stands ready to hear your cry. And extend to you His grace. So this morning as we come to the table here in just a moment, I'm going to invite our band, those who are leading the song, to go ahead and come and receive the elements. And as they do, I just want to say this to you. If you're here in the room this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never placed your faith in Jesus. You've never repented of sin. Never stopped running away from God and called out to Him to be saved. Then as we come to the Lord's table and we take of the bread and the cup, we just ask you to stay where you are. And watch as we come. But if you are a Christian, whether you're a member of this church or not, we invite you to the table to rehearse with us the grace of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. And maybe that you need to pray. 
confessing sin before you come. If that's true, do so. But come to the table with confidence, knowing that Christ's blood is what makes you worthy and not your performance. If you're not a Christian, you stay where you are. Our hope would be that you would come back next week and the week after and the week after and continue to hear about this good news of Christ so that one day God, by the whole power of the Holy Spirit, would flip the switch in your life and bring you to life and then you would be the table with us. But until then, we just invite you to watch and witness as we rehearse God's grace through the bread and the cup. I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to lead us in song and then we're going to respond together rehearsing God's grace in those yet moments in our own lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the kindness that you've shown. That while we deserved nothing but death and separation and damnation, because we could never get low enough without scraping the bar or touching the ground, Some may be able to bend lower than others, but none of us can ever get low enough to pass through the bar of perfection. But your son, your son has, and he did. And so despite the fact that we don't deserve to be delivered, that you spared no expense in securing our deliverance, And for many of us, like Jonah, when we reach the bottom of the pit, we look up and we call out. And we find that our testimony becomes that of Jonah's. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. We get a taste of your goodness and your grace in your son, Jesus Christ. who has become for us sin and salvation. We thank you that though the blood of bulls and goats could not deal ultimately with our sin, they pointed to the Lamb who could so that whenever Jonah looked to the temple, Father, he looked to the place in which you reside. He looked to you and your perfection found himself to be utterly insufficient, so also we look to your Son whom you provided a body and who lived according to your will at every step of the way and realize we could never meet that mark but that he has for us. And by his grace, He's extended His hand to us so that we might have the yet moment of conversion and the yet moment of change as we move forward in our walk with Him. Help us to rehearse that today as we come to the table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.